Hello, this is Leslie Graffa Tenser, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Brian L. Fry about copyright and the fair use doctrine. Professor Brian L. Fry is the Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky and the host of Ipsit Dixit, a podcast on scholarship in the law. In this discussion, we talk about the fair use doctrine and its relationship to copyright law. We begin with a discussion of the history of copyright law and the fair use doctrine, and Professor Fry ends with a discussion of the four factors students should weigh to decide whether the fair use doctrine applies there by permitting a limited use of copyrighted material. Here's my discussion with Professor Fry. My understanding of fair use is limited, although one of my favorite examples of fair use, I don't know if you know this one, when the family guy did a parody of um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Did you uh, ever I, I, No, I didn't see that one. Yeah, I'm a little my, my generation is a little yeah. different than yours. But it was it was it was very, very close to Willy Wonka and the and the uh, chocolate factory, but it was indeed a parody. So mm. anyway, so what is fair use? Right. So uh, fair use is an exception to copyright protection. Mm-hmm. Most people consider it the the most important exception. And essentially it says that um, certain otherwise infringing uses of a copyright protected work are non-infringing because of the way in which they're used. Basically, copyright protection is afforded to people who create works of literature, works of music? I mean, is there like a better definition how it, of, of when something is copyrightable? Yeah. So uh, as a kind of a subject matter definition, copyright protects uh, original works of authorship mm-hmm. um, by giving the author of those works certain exclusive rights to uh, uh, in those works that allow they can that they can uh, license or or transfer, uh, and the kind of conventional reason for doing that is that we want to encourage authors to create works of authorship by enabling them to profit from them. Right. So there's that famous Boswell quote: uh, "No man but a blockhead ever wrote except for money." Right? <laughs> the idea is we give people cop- we give authors copyright protection in order to encourage them to produce works of authorship that we value. Of course, there's an internal kind of irony or or contradiction there, insofar as uh, copyright uh, policy encourages authors to speak by enabling uh, them to stop others from speaking, right? Copyright is, in effect, a way that authors can stop others from using the works of authorship that that they've created. And so there's this kind of embedded um, First Amendment or kind of more broadly sort of policy issue around when we want to allow authors to stop others from using uh, the works that they've created. And that's sort of the origin of, of the fair use of the fair use doctrine. The idea is that it kind of helps square some of those uh, First Amendment related tensions. That's interesting. So true balancing test Right. I mean, against each other. And when we say authors, you don't necessarily mean authors in the traditional sense of novelists and biographers, but also it could be musicians and um, are artists covered as authors? Are they considered artists, uh, works of art? That are yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, author is a is a technical term with mm-hmm. copyright protection that covers any individual or entity that is uh, has in, in which copyright vests. And so 
whatever category of work can be or whatever kind of work or whatever element of a work can be protected by by copyright the author would simply be the person or entity responsible for the generation of that uh, copyrightable work or or element so it's a quite capacious term indeed um although historically of course copyright protection grew out of um uh, protections afforded to authors of literary works. Today, that's only one category of works that would be protected by by copyright. In, in theory, any work that contains an original element mm-hmm. uh, would be a copyrightable work of of authorship. Got it. All right. So then, so um, just to kind of lay this clearly, an author writes. A book. Well, let's go back to what is Willy Wonka? Am I dating myself way too much with Willy Wonka? Not, not at all. <laughs> the Gene Wilder version, not the Johnny Depp version, but anyway. <laughs> the Johnny Depp version is not my favorite. The Gene Wilder version is far superior. Okay, good to hear. Good to hear. Um, anyway, so so um, Roald Dahl, I think that's who authored um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? And then yes. the Family Guy does a parody of it. And um, Roald Dahl's estate now challenges that, that they have infringed on his copyright. And the defense for the family guy would be fair use, correct? Well, yes, probably, especially in in the case that that you describe, right? Mm-hmm. So, fair use is is a, a kind of a originated as a common law doctrine uh, that has existed, you know, really since the very earliest days of of copyright protection. And essentially what it does is say that um, the copyright owners can't prohibit certain categories or certain kinds of uses of, of their work, uh, often like critical uses, uh, scholarly uses, educational uses, um, and so on. Um, and so, uh, you know, it developed in the United, in England and then in the United States as well as this kind of set of common law principles defining when it was or kind of identifying when it was that uh, that authors or copyright owners couldn't assert their 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 copyright ownership or couldn't assert infringement claims against against certain users uh, and then it was codified in in the 1976 Act for for the first time. Now the stated premise of the 76 Act codification was actually simply to kind of take this common law doctrine and put it into statutory form. So the idea was to sort of incorporate the common law history of the concept of of fair use. And essentially what it does is in the preamble lay out the, um, the sort of purposes and categories of uses that would typically be conceptualized as as fair uses and then provide a set of four factors that uh, courts historically have considered in determining whether particular uses are are fair uses now through a kind of historical accident the concept of parity has been um, tied uh, mm-hmm. with the concept of fair use in United States uh, copyright law. But in a lot of respects, that's kind of an accident. Um, and it comes out of the sort of Supreme Court's very limited jurisprudence uh, considering fair use with respect to, to copyrighted works. And in particular, the case in which um, Acuff Rose, uh, the music publisher, sued uh, Two Life Crew for copyright infringement based on their um, parody of the Roy Orbison song 
pretty woman. Right. So they sort of, they created a, a kind of a rap, a, a, a sort of dirty rap parody of, of pretty woman. And, um, in describing the use that two live crew made of the Roy Orbison copyrighted musical work, the court included a long description of, of parody, mm-hmm. um, defining their use as a parody use and explaining why it was that parody was a category of uses that fell into the concept of, of fair use. Um, unfortunately, um, a lot of people reading kind of superficially reading that opinion uh interpreted the court as saying that parody was in some way a sort of favored form of fair use or sort of that parody sort of defined what it meant for something to be a fair use and so for a long time there was this idea that um there was a kind of kind of a, a special carve out for parody uses but that other kinds of uses um might not be fair uses, even if a parody use uh, might be. And and that's actually not only kind of conceptually incoherent, but fundamentally inconsistent with the actual language of the opinion itself, which quite explicitly said said the opposite, right? Now, it is the case that because the court was very explicit that parody was a form of use in which large large portions of the original would have to be used Mm -hmm. in order for the parody to function as a parody. There is a sort of de facto um, practical industry carve out of parody as kind of a category of uses in which the owners of the underlying copyrighted works sort of have come to understand that there's no point in bringing an infringement claim in the first place, because not only will they lose, um, but because under the Copyright Act, there's a fee shifting provision, they're quite likely to have to pay uh, attorney's fees uh, Mm -hmm. for for filing a frivolous claim. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's become the case that you see things like the um, family guy, something like that family guy parody that you mentioned, um, kind of more... um, (laughs) <laughs> there's also an entire um sort of genre of what I refer to as like porn parodies mm-hmm. for example so the the pornography industry has really taken this this kind of um parody car this de facto parody carve out right. and and run with it but, but 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 i think it's really important to be aware that fair use is not about parody parody is simply one category of uses that's been very explicitly defined as a fair use you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that i guess i have succumbed to kind of the popular culture notion of fair use if you could say there's a popular culture notion of fair use that it is parody and and um, but I guess that's kind of what we see quite often. So what would be? Well, I, 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 I would I would I would strongly disagree. Actually, okay. I, I, yeah, the example I like to give for my students is um, you're a law professor, right? Right. I am. So <laughs> you, yes, <laughs> yeah. you write law. You write law review articles. Correct. I do. And in and in your law review articles, you include quotations from other law review articles and other sources. Right. I do. Everyone, and I footnote them. Every one of those is a fair use. Interesting. Well, it's a fair use as long as I quote it, right? Not, I mean, not quote it as long as I reference it, correct? No. What if I don't reference it? Is it still a fair use? It's still a fair use. Really? Yes, yes, yes. Now, I mean, as a practical matter, um, courts and juries are unsympathetic to what's perceived as 
plagiarism, mm-hmm. right? like copy, copying without attribution. But there mm-hmm. actually is no such thing as, broadly speaking, there's no such thing as an attribution right in the Copyright Act. And I would caveat that, you know, for certain categories of uh, authors who create works of visual art, there is a limited attribution right. But as a general matter, there's no such thing as an attribution right in the Copyright Act. So a, a use is either infringing by virtue of the use that's made, or it's not infringing uh, if it's a fair use. And attribution is not actually one of the um, is not what actually one of the the sort of elements explicitly included. Now, as a practical matter, right? Um, and, the, and the reason I like to use this example is that we think of fair use often as being something like hard to understand or sort of a claim where you're sort of the burden is on the claimant to show that the use that they're making is permitted. But that's only because so much of what actually falls into the category of fair use has become so natural and so expected that we no longer even recognize it as being a fair use in in the first place. Um, That's like, that's super interesting to me. So explain to me, because I really don't know this, why it's okay under the fair use doctrine for me to, so I just wrote an article and there is a professor um, named Ronnell Anderson Jones. And I just used some of her thoughts in my article. Why is that? Okay. Okay. Well, depending on what you mean by using some of her thoughts, um, they may or may not be copyrightable elements of the original work in the first place. Right? Okay. So in this, in within copyright doctrine, there's mm-hmm. something often referred to as the idea expression dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And essentially that's one of a series of different ways that copyright doctrine differentiates between the elements of a work that can be the subject matter of copyright protection and the elements of the work that, Cannot. So the concept of originality is sort of fundamental to the subject matter of copyright. And in a sense, um, there's sort of this, uh, this sort of internal doctrinal definition that when a um, expression becomes too abstract, mm-hmm. it falls on into the idea side of the um, into the idea side of the category of originality and is no longer the subject matter of copyright protection. So an expression has to be sufficiently particularized in order to actually qualify for copyright protection as an element of a work in the first place. And it's for that reason um, that, you know, we have to distinguish between, well, did you, you know, copy words from someone's article, for example, or did you use certain ideas from their work. I see. Um, and since those ideas wouldn't be the subject matter of copyright protection in the first place, it would doubly be the case that attribution would actually, as a copyright matter, not be obligatory because the person who first expressed those ideas has no kind of copyright-based proprietary interest in them in the first place. And that is, in fact, the reason, or one of the many reasons, why uh, certain kinds of norms developed uh, in various forms of uh, sort of various categories of expression or various sort of different parts of the creative industries that we refer to as, as plagiarism. Right? Got it. Right? Yeah. So it's essentially, when an author complains about something like copying without attribution or stealing my ideas, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. right? that's not a copyright claim. It's, it's a claim that somebody's plagiarized you, hmm. right? And so it's, in effect, a, a kind of a norms-based claim that they've that person has violated the internal norms of the 
the rhetorical or, or, or uh, expressive community in which they're participating. But it's really important, I think, to distinguish that despite the um, unfortunate slippage in uh, common usage between plagiarism and copyright infringement, there is, in fact, no such thing as a cause of action for plagiarism. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, there is a violation of the honor code. I just want to say that for, for <laughs> yeah. students listening, it is not okay to plagiarize. <laughs> well, so your students may be interested in an article uh, I published a few years ago called Plagiarism is Not a Crime, in which I question the legitimacy, in particular, of academic plagiarism. Oh, what a great, that is a great article. I'm going to reference that. Um, uh, plagiarism is not a crime, and you can pull it up on Westlaw or SSRN. I encourage everyone to read that. And just as you're speaking as a theoretical point, and this kind of goes back to what you're saying earlier, it's an idea of, of balancing individual rights with not, with not just the First Amendment, but the right to move forward as a society and improving on ideas and expanding on ideas. And if everyone had a proprietal right to their own ideas, then we'd kind of little, build little boxes around each person's idea, and we'd never be able to grow I, I think that's right. And that's why I like not to sort of cabin the concept of fair use only within the scope of First Amendment protections. So an important part of fair use is this idea that people have a First Amendment free speech right to criticize and question the mm-hmm. speech of others, even if doing so means needing to copy and comment upon elements of somebody else's uh, expression that might be protected by copyright. But in addition, there's a sort of accretion idea in uh, creative expression, the idea, you know, sort of like, you know, uh, I could not have built this without standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were, right? right. That right. Um, creative expressions and scholarly uh, scholarly expression build on previous work. They don't just spring into existence from the head of Athena, as, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, so the idea behind fair use is to enable those kinds of accretive, uh, uh, creative work, productive expressions, as it were, in a way that, um, that kind of limits inefficiencies or transactions costs that might otherwise be associated with copyright protection, right? So, you know, it's not just that copyright owners could stop someone from doing something, from using a work in a particular way, if there weren't a fair use doctrine. There's also costs associated with getting permission, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's not cost-free for somebody to have to go out to uh, other authors and get their permission to make particular uses of their work, especially um, when, you know, they're, they might be using a whole bunch, right? So if you had to go out and get permission from everyone you quoted in a law review article, that would be quite burdensome and time-consuming and wouldn't generate much, if any, social benefit at all, because in that case, we know in advance that pretty much everyone's going to want you to use <laughs> elements from <laughs> right, the right, right. citations of the currency they're own. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> showing up in, in a law review article, right? But essentially, one from from a kind of uh, from a kind of economic analysis perspective, one of the things that fair use does is effectively reduce transactions costs on uses that we think are socially desirable, right? So the key thing to remember about fair use is that fair use means never having to say, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When you engage in fair use, it means that you don't have to ask permission at all, 
right? Mm -hmm. the, the author does not have a viable copyright infringement claim against you in the first place. And so there's no obligation to ask permission and there's no obligation to obtain a license or pay any kind of um, royalty to the owner of the original work. And in part, that's because we see copyright is being intended ultimately to benefit the public. And fair use is a way of kind of cabining copyright policy in a productive way to ensure that that benefit to the public is maximized uh, across across the board in, in areas where it might otherwise be limited by, by copyright protection. And actually the, the sort of the preamble to the fair use uh, statute, section 107 of the Copyright Act, I think does a pretty nice job of kind of identifying uh, some of the areas in which we think that that kind of activity is often productive. So, for example, it identifies um, criticism, commentary, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, research as kind of paradigmatic um, uh, fair uses of previously existing copyrighted works. Sort of help, I think, with an intention to help us think about why it is mm -hmm. we would want. Um, fair use to be uh, available for authors working in those areas, right? And yeah. then it also provides, you know, from a student perspective, they should know that the statute also does provide a set of of factors for courts to think about, right? Those and that those are the four factors you referenced earlier, right? And, yeah. and those are, are, are the, and am I correct in saying that those are the four factors that a court should look at in deciding whether something is fair use? or whether it is copyright protected? Yeah, so this is a kind of a classy example to kind of step back and take a sort of meta-theoretical look at, um, at how fair use and fair use works in particular and how legal doctrine uh, tends to work in general, right? The, the fair use statute lays out four factors or four things that, four concepts that courts should consider when, when evaluating whether or not a, a particular use is a fair use. And as is so often the case, um, in actually applying those four factors, courts often um, become quite rigid uh, in their thinking about an application of those four factors. And students often become even more rigid <laughs> in their thinking about an application of, of those factors. And, and so I think one thing to remember is that the, the factors are intended as sort of things to think about, mm -hmm. not as um, sort of uh, requirements that must be satisfied, right? Okay. And in, in, in particular, um, the first and, and fourth factors uh, sort of work in tandem mm -hmm. with each other mm -hmm. and, and tend to kind of broadly speaking define the scope of most of most fair uses, right? So the, the first factor goes to the purpose and character of the use. In other words, how are you using the original work? Um, and then the fourth factor goes to the effect of the use on, on the market. And so the first factor is, is typically come to be defined as asking whether or not a use is transformative of mm -hmm. the original use. Um, and typically that can mean whether it, changes the work itself. In other words, it recontextualizes the original in the way that changes the meaning of the original, or it can mean whether it changes the sort of social use mm -hmm. of the original work. In other words, it, it uses it in a way that's not relevant to the copyright ownership of the, the original author. 
right? So for example, something like a parody or a criticism or a scholarly use might be a transformative use, right? In the sense that when you're quoting from a previously existing work in your law review article, right, you're doing so in order to recontextualize and give new meaning right. to the work that, that you're quoting, right? By contrast, um, if I were, were to, for, for example, make a mixtape for a friend of mine, that would technically be a copyright infringement, right? But it's because the use is, diff- is seen as kind of socially productively different mm-hmm. that it would still typically fall within the category of fair use. Now, if I were to distribute that broadly to the general public, that might be a different matter entirely, but something like a personal use, for right. example, right. is typically considered a fair use. Why? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, because as a transformative use, right, both your criticism of the original and my use of the original to create a single copy to share with a friend ultimately doesn't have an effect on the market for mm-hmm. the, the, so the economic value of the original work, right? In other words, when you quote from somebody else's law review article, or I write a book review to criticize uh, a previously existing book or movie, or something along those lines, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not by doing so um, competing right. with the author of the original for the economic value of of the work. Likewise, when I make a mixtape, right, that's not competing with the ability of the original author. To, um, to sell copies of their own music. In fact, if anything, it may be a benefit to right. them so right. far as I may, I may be creating a new fan who right. will go out and buy more copies of, of their work, right? So the idea is to, to think about how these, um, how these factors function um, practically mm-hmm. to get to the reasons that we grant copyright protection in the first place. That's great advice. And and not not to digress too much, but when they had the original file sharings, you know, like pre-Pandora, like those first generation, that was the issue, right? That they were kind of putting these on the internet for free under this notion that they were copy that they were under the notion that the fair use doctrine was protecting them and then the courts got involved and whatever, right? I, I, I think that's right. I mean the 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 Supreme Court cases and lower court cases deciding um, the sort of whether or not these would be permitted uses are a, a little baroque <laughs> in terms in terms of their reasoning. But I, I think it's fair to say that as an underlying matter, you're right. Mm-hmm. Right. That ultimately the decision of the Supreme Court and the lower courts was driven by the perception that these websites, no matter how they describe themselves, were in practice um, being used to derive an economic benefit at the expense of the original authors. Right. And that this was not a, a socially productive use that didn't infringe on the market for the original, but rather a sort of substitute for the market for the original hair and, and, and for that reason didn't fall within the scope of fair use protection. And that's actually a, a, a great example of, of why I really encourage students not to think mechanically mm-hmm. about the fair use doctrine, right? So it's very easy from a student perspective to say, okay, well, I'm doing a fair use analysis. I'm going to walk through the four factors and just enumerate, you know, how, you know, the, how the facts of this particular circumstance would fall within each one of these four factors. And when they're done with factor four, they sort of, you know, okay, now I'm done. I don't have to do anything more. That really misses the point, 
right? Because a, a fair use analysis is, is fundamentally a policy analysis. And I know students often hate policy. They don't want to think <laughs> about policy, but you can't do a good, for, you can't do a good fair use analysis mm-hmm. without doing a policy analysis hmm. because the whole point of fair use is to square the rights of copyright owners with the rights of the public, right? And the four fair use factors are simply principles to consider when asking as a policy matter how best to go about you know, making that, making that judgment call. Got it. Great. All right. So you talked about, um, factors one and four. What about factors two and three? All right. So factor two goes to the nature of the work that's typically, um, understood as, as asking, you know, is this a, a creative work or a work of fiction, right? In which case copyright protection would tend to be um, more substantial, or is it a fact-based work like a nonfiction work or journalism of some kind, in which case uh, copyright protection would, would be understood typically to be less robust mm-hmm. um, because the original expression embodied in the work would be less substantial. In other words, you know, the sort of, so, I, I, and, I, and I would characterize that as effectively saying, look, the social need for people to be able to take and report on facts is even more compelling than the social need for people to be able to take and comment on um, creative works of authorship, right? And so we want to be especially solicitous to those kinds of uses because fact-based works, you know, even more significantly impact First Amendment values of free expression and and political speech, right? So it's not Mm -hmm. just a mechanical, is it facts or is it fiction? It's, you know, what's the nature of the work and why is this, what what kind of use is uh, is the alleged infringer making? And then the third factor is the amount and substantiality of the work in question. And again, this is ultimately, I think, tied in with the fourth factor because the reason we care about the amount and substantiality of the original work that's used is because we care about the extent to which the use that's being made by the second user is competing for the market for the original, right? In some way, stealing profits that would otherwise go to the copyright owner. Right. And so sort of the, the difficulty, of course, is that any use can be characterized as the potential source of profits. And actually, you know, the, the um, Acuff Rose v. Uh, Two Live Crew Luke Campbell case is a great example of that. Right. So Two Live Crew said, look, this is a this is a parody use of the original. It's not competing with mm-hmm. the Roy Orbison song. This is a, you know, a rap parody that we've done. And. Acuff Rose's response was, well, you've, you've entirely competed with our market for rap parodies. Right. Right. Um, right. <laughs> and the court's response was, well, that's not what we mean right. by um, competing with the market right. for the original, right? Because the use that's being made in this context is creating a new market right. that the previous user or the, that the copyright owner had not previously been exploiting, didn't show any intention to exploit, and ultimately really isn't within the scope of the grant of copyright protection in the first place mm-hmm. as, a, as a policy matter, 
right? We're not going to find that this is the kind of market competition that we care about for right. the purpose of right. the fair use analysis, right? This is a new productive use that's generating social value that wouldn't otherwise have been generated. You know, it's interesting. I'm reading um, the Tiger, the new Tiger Woods biography. In the opening prologue, they basically say, Tiger Woods would not meet with me. So this is an amalgam of all the other articles and all the other books that have been written about Tiger Woods. So mm-hmm. that's an example of fair use, that they're taking other people's ideas, but they're not lifting chapter by chapter. Rather, they're kind of spinning them together and presenting their own web, for lack of a better analogy. That, that, that's right. And that's precisely the kind of use that fair use is designed to place within the category of permitted uses for which an author doesn't have to obtain permission. And I would actually suggest that that kind of use is so much in that category that Mm -hmm. the author of the work probably didn't even ask whether it was a fair use or not, right? It's taken for granted that when you're creating a scholarly work or even a popular work, Right. right, that you use previously existing sources as the source material right. for the new expressive work right. that you are creating. So I think it's a great example of a situation where people are engaging in fair use, but it's become so much part of our generally accepted set of social norms within a particular expressive community, right, of, of authors, mm-hmm. that no one conceptualizes it as fair use anymore. Mm-hmm. They take it for granted that this is simply outside the scope of copyright. Great. So just um, to get to the students for just a moment, in addition to understanding that these are not kind of black and white check off four factors, what do you see on an exam in particular, or maybe even in class as being some of the difficulties that students struggle with when working on when writing about fair use or analyzing fair use? And how do you recommend that they resolve those difficulties? Yeah, I mean, like is so often the case, um, fair use is a highly fact-specific question. So one has to be highly attentive to the facts of the particular situation at hand. Mm-hmm. Right now, that's that's always the case, but I think it's especially the case when it comes to fair use because you know the facts are driving the policy mm-hmm. outcome. Right. So I, I mean, I, I really think I can't overemphasize the extent to which simply quote unquote applying the four factors mm-hmm. is not going to be a terribly compelling way of engaging with the fair use analysis. It won't be a terribly compelling way to engage with it with respect to your professor. Right, right. right. Because that kind of mechanical approach reflects sort of a lack of comprehension of the purpose of the fair use doctrine. But it's also not a very effective rhetorical strategy, right? Because making a fair use argument is about telling a story Mm -hmm. about why a particular use is or is not or should or shouldn't be an infringing use, right? So when you're trying to describe a client's you know, use uh, to a judge, for example, you're going to want to tell a story about why a client's use shouldn't be the kind of use that would be treated as infringing and vice versa. You know, if you're representing a copyright owner, you're going to want to tell a story explaining why a particular use should fall in the category of prohibited uses. And this is really borne out by the history of copyright litigation, um, some of the more kind of borderline cases come up in in a fine art context. We mm-hmm. often have what are known as like appropriation artists, like mm-hmm. Jeff Koon 
or Richard Prince, whose art practice is based on using previously existing works. Um, and the sort of paradigmatic situation they found themselves in, their typical situation they found themselves in, is they get sued in district court and the artist is basically like, I don't care, you know, I don't have any meaning. I just do what I do. This is like, this is just an appropriation. It's just what I do. And they lose because the courts and the juries see them as being unsympathetic defendants, right? That in effect, yeah. they're just borrowers who aren't adding, adding anything new and they can't justify mm-hmm. the use that they're making. And then on appeal, they get a better lawyer who <laughs> says to them, hey, you know, in order to prevail in this kind of case, you need to explain to the decision maker why it is this is the kind of use that ought to be a protected use as right. opposed to an infringing use. You need to give them the reasons why right. this use is transformative. You need to give them the reasons why this use is not improperly competing with the owner of the copyrighted work. And, and that's, you know, and that's part of the, you know, as an underlying matter, copyright doctrine or copyright law is kind of de facto a form of competition. Right. Right. And, yeah. But, and, and, but that, but that's one of the best tips that I think you can give a law student, not just for fair use, but for all law, which is courts never mechanically apply the elements. I'm th- I teach torts and I teach contracts, both which are very elemental. And I used to teach criminal law also. And I think if you just kind of check them off one at a time without thinking about the broader picture, then you're not making a good legal argument. Yes, you're being an undergrad and you're doing exactly what you were told to do in undergraduate school, which is apply the law to the fact, boom, boom, boom. But the idea is you have to make a compelling story. And so when you do apply those four factors, what you say, which is right, is think about the end of the story. What is the theme you're trying to communicate and make sure that you infuse your four factors with kind of that story? That's great advice. And I think you need to think about the policy and the the theme before you start applying the four factors. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, especially when it comes to to fair use and copyright more broadly, um, there's a profound normativity baked into it. Mm-hmm. Right? For better or for worse. Right mm-hmm. Now, we may not think that should be the case, um, but there is a sense in which we socially, culturally value the contribution made by an author mm-hmm. and come into a fair use context potentially skeptical of uses to which the author objects. Right. So like it or not, right, a person making a fair use argument is going to need to overcome those kinds of normative objections to the uses that they're making and explain why they're not in the wrong, but are in fact in the right under the circumstances. Got it. This is so interesting and fascinating. Um, Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Anything else students need to know or... Um, I know. I cut, in fairness, I cut your time. <laughs> I know we could talk about this all day, so it's my fault. But <laughs> not, 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 not at all. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think the thing that students should should recognize is just that copyright is not just a kind of a, a clean doctrinal class. That at, at its heart, it's common law embedded in statutory form mm-hmm. and so you need, to, you need to think about it in common law terms in many cases got it that makes a lot of sense that's wonderful and that and that goes to the idea of 
applying the four factors that you have to think about this more. And uh, wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been so helpful. I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, I, it's, it's just been great. Thanks. It's been nice to speak with you. The, the pleasure is all mine. I'm always happy to talk about copyright law. Great. Thank you. So that was my super interesting discussion on copyright law with Professor Fry. Just a reminder that if you need to get in touch with us, you can email us at lawtofact.gmail.com or tweet us at lawtofact. And as always, we'd love it if you subscribed or liked us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform on which you listen. Thanks as always to www.bensound.com for the music. Enjoy your day.